Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. In the second century AD, there was a Buddhist philosopher monk named Nagajuna, who would one day be called the Second Buddha. He wrote a book, the Mula Majamaka Karaka the root verses on the middle way, which became the preeminent exposition of the notion of emptiness in Buddhism. Emptiness was to become definitive of the new fangled Mahayana movement alongside the Bodhisattva ideal, which would one day take root in about two-thirds of the Buddhist world. Just to give a flavor of Nagarjuna's teaching, the very first of the root verses reads, Neither from itself, nor from another, nor from both, nor without a cause, does anything, whatever, anywhere, arise. Radical stuff. Nagarjuna's accomplishment was to demonstrate logically, in fact by reductio ad absurdum, that any reality in which there are self-existing objects as we conceive them would be a frozen reality in which change is impossible, for such objects would be unaffected by conditionality. Nagarjuna lived in an era where debate was all the rage. Scholars from different schools or sects of Buddhism debated with one another and Buddhists debated with adherents of other schools, such as the scholarly, Brahmanical, Nyaya, or Washeshika schools. The art of debate still lives on, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. Nagarjuna's proofs must have been very convincing in debate for the Majamaka, or Middle Way school, that he founded became increasingly influential with time and is quite foundational in East Asian and Tibetan Buddhism, including Zen. In fact, Nagarjuna, in the following centuries, became, much like the Buddha, the subject of myth and lore. One of the stories told about him is that the Buddha had formulated the teachings of emptiness long ago, but secretly, entrusting them to dragons who dwelt underwater until such time as the world would be ready for such radical teachings. The word for dragon is Naga, which is also the beginning of Nagajuna's name. Nagajuna recovered, so the legend goes, the Buddha's teachings on emptiness from the Naga's underwater lair and revealed them to the world. One problem with the story about dragons is that emptiness had been forcefully expounded for probably two centuries before Nagarjuna, starting in the first century BC in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the Prajna Paramita. 
the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras are regarded as the very first textual evidence of the Mahayana movement and taught both emptiness and the Bodhisattva ideal. They're apocryphal, that is, they misleadingly attribute themselves to the Buddha and his disciples, though scholars have little doubt that they and all of the Mahayana sutras, the Lotus Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, and so on, were composed by unknown authors many centuries after the Buddha. The best known of about 40 perfection of wisdom sutras, composed over several centuries, are the Diamond Sutra and the Very Concise Heart Sutra, in which the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara appears in discussion with Sariputta and famously contends, Sariputta, all things are marked by emptiness. They do not appear or disappear, are not tainted or pure, do not increase or decrease. Therefore, in emptiness, no form, no feeling, no perception, no formations, no cognition, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of eyes, and so forth until no realm of mind consciousness, no ignorance, nor extinction of it, and so forth until no old age and death and no extinction of them. No suffering, no origination, no cessation, no path, no cognition. You get the idea. The Heart Sutra actually postdates Nagarjuna in the long series of Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, but reflects the radical nature of even the earliest sutras. In any case, these sutras were undoubtedly still a very marginal familiarity at the time of Nagarjuna. The difference between the perfection of wisdom and Nagarjuna is that the perfection of wisdom simply declared this and that to be empty of self-existence. But Nagarjuna proved it, and thereby produced material that could be effective in debate against those unfamiliar with this way of thinking. But notice that both the perfection of wisdom sutras and the lore around Nagarjuna both have in common the attempt to attribute the teachings of emptiness to the Buddha. The authority of the Buddha was actually critical for the eventual success of the Mahayana movement as a way to make people willing to memorize or transcribe texts as the only means of preservation before the era of printing and eventually drag and drop. The more interesting question is the relation of both Nagarjuna and the perfection of wisdom to what was being taught prior to the inception of the Mahayana movement. With respect to what? Were these new teachings radical? The language of the perfection of wisdom and of Nagarjuna is revolutionary. What preceded these teachings on emptiness? The Heart Sutra actually involves three characters. The speaker is the mythical Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, 
who is none other than Guan Yin, well known throughout East Asia. Avalokiteshvara is explaining emptiness to Sariputta, who was, in real life, the Buddha's foremost disciple in wisdom, yet is apparently clueless about this teaching of emptiness. The third character present is the Buddha, who says nothing, but at the end of Avalokiteshvara's discourse nods in assent. So Avalokiteshvara understands emptiness, Sariputta represents whatever preceded the perfection of wisdom, and the Buddha endorses emptiness, giving it the required all-knowing authority. If we look closely at the early discourses of the Buddha, the suttas from centuries before the perfection of wisdom, we find that the Buddha did teach emptiness and did not keep it or any of his teachings a secret. As he once said, I do not teach with a closed fist. Moreover, the Buddha predicted that these teachings on emptiness would be difficult for future generations to comprehend. He stated, When those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to understand them and they will not think those teachings should be studied and mastered. In this way, bhikkhus, those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. The Buddha also described himself as dwelling in emptiness and instructed his disciples in the practice of experiencing the world as empty of the categories we habitually project onto the world, particularly empty of self. Of course, the brilliant Sariputta would have fully understood the Buddha's teachings if anyone would have. At first glance, it might look like the emptiness that the Buddha spoke of is different from the emptiness that Nagarjuna wrote about. The language of the Buddha is more experientially oriented, and that of Nagarjuna is about the insubstantiality of the reality beyond experience. However, a bit of reflection shows that in either case, what is at issue is the mismatch between what we presume and what is really true between how we experience the world to be and what the world actually is like. The Buddha and Nagarjuna are looking at the same mismatch. The Buddha, from the perspective of our presumptions, Nagarjuna from the perspective of reality. For the Buddha, our concepts fail to reach reality. For Nagarjuna, reality fails to meet the expectations of our concepts. In particularly, we presume that the world consists of more or less permanent self-existing objects, but reality cannot possibly be like that. It is the Buddha that is most explicit 
about the practice implications of emptiness, we need to be careful in our presumptions. Presumption is a disease. Presumption is a tumor. Presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die, he is not shaken and does not yearn, for there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. So we're forced to conclude that these teachings on emptiness originated with the Buddha, that he felt no need to withhold them from his disciples, nor to entrust them to dragons for Nagajuna to discover. Instead, these teachings had become obscured in the centuries after the Buddha and were later rediscovered in the perfection of wisdom and reestablished by Nagajuna. So what happened to obscure the teachings of emptiness between the 5th and 1st centuries BC and beyond for which Sariputta became the fall guy. The great Buddhist scholar David Kalupahana has the answer, the Abhidharma. The Abhidharma is a method of analysis that took root in the early centuries of Buddhism as a systemization of the Buddha's orally transmitted teachings. Just as a serious student of Shakespeare will find the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare a handy resource, and the serious reader of my new book on Dependent Co-Arising will find its glossary useful. The serious student of the Dharma was undoubtedly hungry for summaries, indices, and dictionaries. These resources began as a set of tables, possibly even during the life of the Buddha that provided clear definitions of terminology, precise and without figurative language. As these things go, the Abhidharma developed its own distinct, scholarly, and very intellectual method of analysis, distinguished from the Buddha's method, but which nonetheless had much appeal for its preciseness, and among many modern people perhaps for its similarity to the scientific method. It has had an enormous influence on how the Dharma has been interpreted ever since, but has also engendered many doctrinal disputes. The Abhidharma is not a uniform thing, but developed at different rates and in different directions, in different sects, and in different regions of the ancient Buddhist world. This scholarly trend seems to have been shared with many non-Buddhist schools as well, with which Buddhists would engage in debate. In fact, the Abhidharma was certainly significantly shaped by the debate culture I referred to earlier. It's important to note that the Abhidharma was not a revolutionary movement that sought to overthrow anything, but was concerned with a closer understanding of what had gone on before. In fact, in sect after sect, an early local snapshot of evolving Abhidharma 
was included in its canonical corpus alongside the discourses of the Buddha and the monastic discipline. But that Abhidharma was in each case a moving target that continued to develop through application of its method beyond its canonical form for many centuries producing a rich commentarial literature. For instance, in the Theravada case, the canonical Abhidhamma, still very faithful to the perspective of the discourses, gave rise to the much more metaphysically laden commentarial literature in 5th century Sri Lanka, of which Buddha Gosa's Visuddhimagga is the best-known example. The Buddha's early teachings gradually supplemented with the development of Abhidharma and the folding in of new innovations seems to have produced a hybrid orthodoxy in many regions, a coherent version of Dharma in which the source of many constituent ideas, Sutta or Abhidharma, became obscure or unimportant. Modern Theravada could probably be called largely a hybrid orthodoxy in this sense today. Unfortunately, the Abhidharma began to diverge from the intent of the suttas, at first in subtle ways and then many times in not-so-subtle ways. A widespread criticism of the Abhidharma is that its resultant scholastic aims tended to lose sight of spiritual concerns in favor of intellectual speculation. Noah Rontgen, in her book, Early Buddhist Metaphysics, documents in detail the process by which the Abhidharma transitioned from an epistemically oriented framework to a metaphysical theory, which can be traced through the shift in meaning of the word Dhamma, or thing. She writes, While in the Sutta period, the Dhammas served as guidelines for constituting sentient experience based on insubstantialist conceptual schema. Within the Abhidharma framework, the Dhammas emerged as discrete entities, distinct evanescent constituents of experience, and were gradually assigned a growing metaphysical dimension in the form of their svabhava. Svabhava here is self-existence, a term rarely used by the Buddha, but common in Abhidharmic Dhamma theory, and the very concept that Nagarjuna demonstrated to be incoherent. She essentially describes in her book the shift that seems to have obscured emptiness. In any case, it seems clear that what the Mahayana great vehicle arose in opposition to, and which it called the Hinayana lesser vehicle, was certainly the hybrid orthodoxy of at least middle and northern India. The emptiness teaching of perfection of wisdom in Nagarjuna arose in opposition to the loss in that hybrid orthodoxy of the insubstantiality found in the Buddha's early teachings. There have been other similar controversies and upheavals in Buddhist history, 
and I think Terabot is currently in a process of sorting out its own hybrid orthodoxy. However, the existence of controversies in Buddhism should not be a cause for alarm. Buddhism is a practice tradition. Practice is largely a matter of self-discovery, and discovering for ourselves as a way of bridging what we don't understand or perhaps misunderstand doctrinally. In fact, probably few Buddhists in history have had access to the resources that would support a comprehensive overview of Buddhist doctrine, that is, until modern times. And yet people have awakened. I also don't want to discourage study of the Abhidharma, which many find valuable. Myself, I like to go back to what the Buddha taught. The great scholar Edward Conzi once wrote in this regard, There is in Buddhism no real innovation, but what seems so is in fact a subtle adaptation of pre-existing ideas.